All right. Thank you. Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, probably the only church in Orlando that had the opportunity to register uh, via thumb how you feel today. Um, but that's great. Good to be with you. Good to worship with you. Good to have the opportunity to have worship snap us out of our everyday life and remind us that someone created us, someone protects us, someone redeems us, and that there's more to life than we see just, just with our eyes, that God is and he is for us. So I, I love to worship with you. Good songs, more good songs to come uh, after during our time of communion as well. Well, today we continue uh, our series in the book of Philippians, Grace on Fire. Uh, last week you got a break and uh, uh, Joe Creech preached, did a great message I heard about. I'll say some things about it in a minute. But today we continue that series uh, as we jump into chapter four of, of the book of Philippians where Paul, if you remember, is writing to the church that he started, the church in northern Greece uh, called Philippi. Philippi, named after Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's dad, uh, a mighty warrior in his own right. The city, the city of Philippi, you probably remember, is a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, that means it was Rome away from Rome. It means it was a place where Romans could settle. But even more so, not just Romans, it was a place where Roman soldiers could retire, relatively tax-free. It was a place where they spoke, they spoke Latin, they dressed like Romans, they acted like Romans. It was a place where Roman soldiers were everywhere, retired. And these guys talked, these were warriors. It was a warrior city. And they talked about their battles. They, they, they had their scars. They, they talked about their defeats. They talked about, uh, about, about their victories and their losses. So what are we going to talk about today? Warriors. Makes sense, because that's what Paul is really dealing with as we move into this uh, last part of the book. We're going to talk about how, how grace on fire builds, how it builds disciples into, into men and women who can stand firm. But not just standing firm, fight on. How grace builds warriors. Ladies, that's you too. We're going to talk about it, but before we do, let's talk to the ultimate warrior, Let's talk to our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence today so thankful that we could call you Father. That because of what you did, Lord Jesus, we could come and say that the God of the universe who is uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, as Moses said, the mighty warrior, that you have fought for us. That Jesus, you came for us. That God, you fought for your people Israel in the Old Testament. You proved your love for them. You made a holy covenant with them. And you have proven your love for us as well. Lord Jesus, in your life, you endured the attacks of the evil one. You endured the rejection of people. You took the wrath of God for us. Thank you for fighting for us. And Lord, we confess how we often forget that you went to war for us. And we pray that you would, you would help us to honor you today as we understand more and more about what you have done, Lord Jesus. As we look into your word now, we pray that you would speak to us through it. 
We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would truly be the, the, the teacher. And so we pray for the human teacher, that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For we want to hear from you. And so we come into your presence now, asking that you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look in uh, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Philippians 4, 1 through 7. Some of you are saying, this is fantastic. Only seven verses. Last week we looked at what? 12, 14, 15 verses. I don't know. Seven verses as we look at this. Philippians 4, 1 through 7. I'll read them. And as Pastor Jakes teaches us afterwards, after I say this is the word of God, we'll say together, thanks be to God. So here we go. The great apostle says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Ah, and I love this text. This is a great text. One of my favorite texts. This chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the entire, this book is one of my favorite books in the entire New Testament. Uh, and, it's, and I'm going to do something right now that I've never done in all the, all the years that I have preached uh, I'm going to give the I'm going to give the challenge and the application right now before I explain the text. So are you ready? I want to give the summary, the the conclusion, the I've never done this before, so I don't know if it'll work, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here it is. The challenge, the application of this text is memorize these seven verses. Memorize these seven verses. Take these verses to heart. These verses will turn you into a Christian warrior, men and women. You'll be able to deal with life much better if you deal with these verses. Memorize, in fact, memorize most of the last chapter of the book of Philippians. And you can do this. You can do this. This will enable us to live strong. It will turn us into warriors and not spiritual wimps. They're easy to memorize. Nike says, what does Nike say? Just do it. So just do it. All right, that's the application. Let's close in prayer. Not going to be that easy. Uh, you know, let, me tell you, let me give you really quickly uh, uh, a parallel between your own daily Bible reading and what a sermon is supposed to be. Okay, you ready? In, 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 in your own daily Bible reading, and by the way, I call that a dog. I'm not a Georgia fan, but I call it a daily appointment with God. So in my daily Bible reading, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to read a passage in the Bible, right? And then you're supposed to go for comprehension of that verse, 
What does it actually mean? And then interpretation. What, what is, if there's controversial parts, what is it actually saying deeply? And then application, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read a text in the Bible, right? Uh, get comprehension. If there's no comprehension, it proves that we believe in magic. You know, read the Bible and woo, transformation. No, God does not bypass the mind. He wants us to read it and not just say, okay, I read it, 30 seconds, boom, done. Get comprehension by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that helps you understand the Word of God. And then interpretation, if there's any finer points that we don't understand, we got to think that through. And then we got to move to application. Well, that's what a sermon does. Sermon does the same thing. Uh, but the pastor's the one that reads the text of Scripture, and then he explains it and gives some comprehension and interprets some points and then makes application. And so uh, really we're doing something very, very similar. And by the way, this is exactly what Joe Creech talked about last week. If you were here, it was a brilliant sermon. You say, how do you know about it? I w- you weren't here. I know I wasn't. I was in California speaking to a men's group out there. Uh, but Jeff Jakes called me up and ran the whole sermon by, told me. I love that. It was great. Because uh, he said this was a powerful sermon. Do you remember the line? Do you remember the major line? Those of you who, it was on Mary and Martha. In, I'm going to see how many of you were really, you know, here last week. In a, in a Martha world, let's be like, yes, some of you guys were here. In a Martha world, let's, let's, let's act like Mary. We do live in a Martha world. It's so easy for us as Americans, like the Romans, by the way, to be so active, to be doers that we don't do what Mary did, and that is sit at the feet of Jesus. So in, in the... Uh, uh, in, in our personal Bible reading is sitting at the feet of Jesus and praying and talking to him. But then also, there's a time to get up. Is, Mar- is Martha bad? No, she's not bad. I mean, you know, what did I just give you at the beginning? I read the text and then I gave you the Martha steps, didn't I? So Mary and Martha go together. This is important. Uh, it's important for us to understand that there's application because after we sit at the feet of Jesus, then... We get to be Mary's, and then we get to be Martha's. Both. Both and. It's all good. So I gave you the application first. Now you're ready to do the Mary stuff? Let's do the Mary stuff. We'll come back to the Martha stuff at the end. Let's do the Mary stuff. Here's the hook. Here's the introduction to my my message today. There's a great line in the movie 13 Hours. Uh, 13 Hours in Benghazi. I think it's probably appropriate. I started out with a war movie a few weeks ago. And when we did this series, I got to come back to it as we get close to the end. 13 Hours in Benghazi. Some of you have seen it. It's about the defense of the CIA safe house in Benghazi, Libya, after uh, the ambassador's house had been overrun and the ambassador Christopher Stevens and Sean Smith had been killed. The CIA operatives, actually there were uh, contract operatives, former Navy SEALs and former Navy, uh, former Special Forces guys had defended, uh, gone to try and protect the ambassador. Then they'd gone back to the safe house. They were under enormous, enormous battle. And at the, at the first break in the battle on the CIA safe house, because all the guys, all the warriors came over to the safe house, there's a conversation in the movie between two of the warriors there on the top of a building, and one of the guys, he's traumatized. Listen, in all war, there is trauma. 
And every warrior is traumatized. And he says to his friend, he says, every, every time I go back home to Becky and the girls, I think it's the last time that I'll come to war. But then something happens and I end up back here fighting. What will they say of me if I die here? He died in a place he doesn't need to be in a battle he doesn't understand in a country that meant nothing to him. Why can't I just go home and stay there? And his friend looks at him and said, warriors aren't trained to retire, Jack. Warriors aren't trained to retire. Would that that would be true of disciples. That we would understand that discipleship is, not, is becoming a follower, becoming a learner. But in discipleship, we are called men and women into battle. And that this battle is a life and death struggle. And many of you have gone through far greater warfare than you ever thought you would go through. It's because we're in a war. And, and as the Apostle Paul looks at this text, he's unfolding for us what it means to be in a war. You know, military, military metaphors were very close to the Apostle Paul at every moment of his life. He was raised in, in Tarsus. He's Saul of Tarsus. He was raised a Roman by citizenship. He was probably trilingual. He spoke Aramaic, Hebrew. Uh, he spoke Greek. He spoke Latin. He was a Roman as well as a Jew. But everywhere, uh, these, these metaphors were around. You say, well, he liked, he liked athletic metaphors too in the New Testament, didn't he? Yes, he liked athletic metaphors. What, is ath what, what, are, what are athletic metaphors? What, are, what is athletics? Athletics is training for battle. As a matter of fact, what really is sport? Sport is battle without the killing. It is. And sometimes there's some hard hitting. That's what it is. But as Paul looks at the spiritual life, look at Ephesians, Ephesians 6, it was, it was on his mind too. Where is he right now as he's writing to the Philippians as he already wrote to the Ephesians? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. For our struggle, our agony is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a battle. Paul's chained to a Roman soldiers as he writes Philippians. The guy's in battle gear right there. What's he thinking about? War. He's a victim of war right now as he speaks. Put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Uh, put on the full armor of God. And so the reality is, is that there's spiritual warfare. Catch this. This is really important to us. That what the gospel of grace does is it saves us from hell. It reunites us into a relationship with God, but immediately it interjects us in a battle for the rest of our lives until our king who's conquered, comes back. You're in a battle every day of your life. And so what Paul does in the men and women, ladies, you too, 
I was thinking, this is probably not going to be too politically correct. But ladies, you're warriors too. My, my wife just finished a book uh, by Eric Metaxas, Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness. He had written a previous book called Seven Men. And so he wrote a book, Seven Women. And it's, I haven't read it. And I'm going to read some of it. But uh, women, you're warriors too. You're in it. My daughter, I call Jessie the warrior princess. And I've always called her that, not only because she was raised by me and two other older gorilla brothers, but I want her to have this idea that she's in a battle. Uh, Anne Graham Lotz at the back of the book said, Eric Metaxas offers a refreshing view of womanhood as he holds up a plumb line by which we can all measure ourselves. Faith strengthened by fire, courage to forsake personal comfort, boldness to take great risks, sacrificial compassion for others, convictions to live and die by are just some of the common denominators of seven women. A man shouldn't write a book for woman, women, but she says Metaxas gets it right. Grace builds strong women and strong men. Grace builds confident women and confident men. Grace builds bold women and bold men. We all need it because we're all in a battle. So there's only two points in the text that I read for you in these seven verses. Paul teaches his people to stand firm and to fight on. Stand firm, fight on. Let's take a look at stand firm first. It comes from verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, who I long to see my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm. And every time you see in the Bible the word therefore, I've trained years ago, when you see the word therefore, as a Bible interpreter, you ask the question, what is it? What is it therefore? Therefore always refers back. Therefore always refers to a previous idea. Therefore is a summation word. Therefore, in light of everything I've said in chapter three, in this way, and it's interesting, he translates it, in this way stand firm. Some of your Bibles just put it, so stand firm. But the original language there really carries out this idea, in this way, in the way I've just talked to you about, stand firm. And so standing firm is a big part of the Christian life. Well, what in chapter 3? I, I, I think maybe I ought to preach chapter 3, and then we'll come back. To, no, I'm not going to do it. Some of you are panicking. But in chapter 3, you go back and read it. But remember, the Reader's Digest version of chapter 3 is that Paul said, listen, in chapter 3, I want you to understand that, that I was pursuing a self-salvation project on my own. I was trying to earn my way to heaven. And he said, I've given it up. He said, he said, if anybody has a tendency to put confidence in the flesh, Paul said, uh, me, I got, I've got the pedigree. I've got the Jewish pedigree. And in terms of my obedience as a Jew, I thought I had fulfilled the law perfectly. And Paul says, I don't want that anymore. He'd given up, he'd given up his self-righteous acts and his pedigree. I was talking to a guy the other day who was telling me, uh, a pastor, he was telling me that one time in the church he served in Nebraska, a lady said to him, you can't tell me what to do. Pastors love it when that happens. You can't tell me what to do. And he kind of, he didn't think he was trying to tell her what to do, but she said, she said, my parents were in this church. My grandparents were in this church. My great grandparents helped start this church. You can't tell me what to do. Um, she was a Lutheran. 
She was, re- <laughs> she was resting on her pedigree. No Presbyterians would ever rest on their pedigree. No. No non-denoms, no Baptists, no Episcopalians go, well, in my family, some of us can trace back to John Calvin. Some of you look like John Calvin. I want you to know. Paul didn't want any of that. He goes, I don't want any of that. I don't want my pedigree. I don't, any, I don't want any righteousness on my own. Why? Because righteousness on our own is not righteousness. See, we can never stay good enough long enough to offset our sins and be perfectly good. Because our, so anything that we think is righteous is not. That's why he said, I want a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ alone. And then he said, I want to know him. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death. You remember this two, two weeks ago. This is, and, and, and then he says, and one day when Jesus comes back, I'm going to be radically transformed in total perfection to be like Jesus. We sang that in one of our songs. And I was going, yes, I can't wait. I want that. Paul says, this is how you stand firm. Standing firm is resting completely in Jesus Christ and him crucified in the sufficient, all sufficient, once for all work of Jesus Christ. And listen, standing firm is crucial because if we don't stand firm, we're going to get knocked over. Life in this broken world is calculated to knock you over and run you down. You know that, don't you? The Roman soldiers... As a part of their armor, wore sandals that had nails through the bottom of them. Hobnail boots. Why? Because in battle, the ground is often wet and slippery and muddy and it's uneven. And, and you don't have your footing. You wish you had perfect footing as a soldier, but you never do. And so you've got to have, be able to stand firm. Or you will be knocked over. You will be run through. You will be killed. And Paul says for us, the only way that we can stand firm is in all of Jesus Christ. He is the nails through our boots that hold us firm in a world. I, and I love how he loved these guys. He called them beloved brethren. My joy and my crown. So stand firm in this way, in Christ. Don't run anywhere else to stand firm or you won't make it. Um, That's what discipleship is, standing firm in Jesus. And in the battle we're in, we're supposed to stand firm, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And in an amazing way, he says, I don't want you just to stand firm. I want you to fight on. And the rest of chapter four is really telling us how to keep fighting. And he says, now I want to teach you how to fight. When was the last time in a discipleship class, uh, your teacher said, all right, discipleship is learning how to fight. We have got to redo some of our teaching on discipleship because we have an academic mindset about what it means to be a disciple. It's what we know. I was talking to Dr. Richard Pratt after the service. He was one of my professors uh, in seminary, and I love him a lot. And he's Third Mill Ministries. You know him. He comes here. And uh, Dr. Pratt was talking about military metaphors in the Bible. I said, yeah, we agree. It's nice when when you're on the same page with a great mind. Made me feel very good. Yeah. 
We need to change our thinking because we have an academic mindset. I go to seminary and I get a master's degree. And when I graduated from seminary, you guys know, I had a master's of divinity, three years, Greek, Hebrew. And what was I a master of? Absolutely nothing. You will not find anybody more arrogant than a seminary grad, except for a seminary student. We're masters of nothing. We got some tools to use. What we really need is we need to be taught to fight and lead a congregation. And we all need to learn. Pastors ought to be teaching you to fight because you're in a battle. How do we do it? Paul is very practical and he gives four ways that we can fight. First of all, he says there's got to be interpersonal harmony in the church. Verses two through three. This is how we fight. Not, not only to stand firm in Christ, but then how do we fight on? There's got to be inter, interpersonal harmony here. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to, to live in harmony in the Lord. Remember I referred to these verses earlier on when I started this series? And I thought, could you imagine being called out on Sunday morning? All right, Yodia, Syntyche, you're sitting on other sides of the gym. Live in harmony. <sighs> I would have died right there. Melted away, never come back. Uh, to church on that Sunday morning. But interpersonal harmony is important in the church, isn't it? Why? Because we're a team. We are a fighting team. And if we are fighting each other, how can we fight together to advance the gospel? And so interpersonal harmony, we are making disciples to advance Christ's kingdom. And that's why we, there's got to be interpersonal harmony. Uh, we've got to be fighting together, not fighting each other. Now, these two ladies teach us something very big, very big. Now, by the way, guys, it could have been women. It could have been us guys being talked about here, right? Yeah, we know that. We're, you know, everywhere the gospel ever went, it raised the level of women in every culture down through every history. Ask the women in India who come to faith in Christ and how they're treated way, way better because of the, their standing in Christ. The gospel always has raised the level of women, and it still does to this day. It could have been Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts, and we talk about that conflict. That led to two different missionary teams and the spread of the gospel. But those guys had a conflict. I'm one of the few that thinks Paul was probably right in that situation. But that's another story. Christianity, Christianity. In the body of Christ, are we going to have conflicts? Answer, yes. Are you, when I get to heaven, I want to, I want to find Yodia. I want to find Adam first. And secondly, I want to find Yodia or Syntyche, either one. Hey, what was your deal with her? What was going on there? I want to know. Oh, a pastor. I've probably seen it before. It wasn't Christological. It wasn't about Jesus. It probably wasn't theological. It was probably temperamental. Their temperaments were different. They didn't like how each other did stuff. Did that ever happen in the church? No. Inter interpersonal harmony. Of course, you know, listen, you're not going to like everybody in the church. Where in the Bible it says you're going to like everybody in the church? Show me the chapter. No, you got to love them. You can't fight against them. 
Because you don't have to like everybody. Sometimes I don't even like myself, crying out loud. So, but it's important to understand, and sometimes we need a third party to put it right. And Paul is a pastor at the best. Listen to what he says. I urge Yodia, not I command. I urge Yodia. I urge Syntyche. Live in harmony in the Lord. Pull it together. And then he says in verse three, true comrade could be translated yoke fellow. The guy's name might've been Syzygus. That's the word in the original. We don't know. He's an elder, but he was somebody. He was somebody who had the ability to bring people together. He's a peacemaker. And if you're a peacemaker, you might have the gift of bringing people together. Um, we need that because we can be relational messes. In the body of Christ. I love the story. I love the story of the guy who was uh, living on a deserted island. He was, he was, he, his boat went down and he got to a deserted island. He was there for five years all alone on this deserted island. And a guy finally came, found, saw some smoke, came and found him and said, show me where you, show me where you live. So the guy took him in and, and brought him to his campsite. And he said, there were three structures on this campsite. And he said, well, what are those? He goes, well, that's my house over there. He said, what's that? He goes, well, I'm a Christian. That's my church. And he goes, well, what's that one over there? And he goes, that's my former church, the church I used to go to. <laughs> Isn't that the way we can be? We've seen the enemy. It's us. And so Paul says, live in harmony, a church that moves. So the challenge, the challenge is for us to see ourselves here. Is there somebody I need to, to be restored with in a relationship? Because the church needs to be held. What you do, how I live in relation to other people in the body of Christ affects how a church moves forward, doesn't it? It does. That's how we fight on interpersonal harmony. He gives another idea here. Internal joy. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and see, this is powerful because how we fight together, we are happy warriors, joyful warriors. We're not solemn warriors. And Paul modeled this in the very foundation of the church in Philippi. You remember how he got put in jail? They're preaching the gospel, and there was this slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and she was always interrupting Paul when he was preaching. Listen, if you interrupt me, I'll probably sit down. I don't know. But she was constantly interrupting this with Paul when he would give the gospel and say things like, they're servants of God who are here to tell you the way of salvation. And Paul got so annoyed that he cast the demon out of that girl, and then, she, and then her owners lost uh, the profit that they were making from her through Paul in prison. What'd they do when they throw you into prison? They beat you up. Beat him with rods on his back, and then they put you in stocks. Tell me how that feels. And so when the earthquake took place, what were they doing that night? Those guys were having a hymn sing with mandolins and guitars and stuff like you're going to have. No, but they were having a hymn sing. Why? Because Paul knew that he was a warrior. He was in a battle. It was life and death. And he was just beat up physically and spiritually. But his hope was not in circumstances, but in a person. Jesus, who was real. Joy is how we fight together. 
based on Jesus. Joy is a big problem in the church because a lot of Christians don't have it. We were talking about this at our, our, our Forge Men's Ministries this week. We were talking about joy and why a lot of times we men don't have joy because we're out building our image instead of living out of our identity. Trying to build an image. And if I'm trying to build an image rather than living out of my identity, I'm not going to be very happy. It occurred to me as I was sitting listening to the guys at my table, if you have joy, you're more likely to have happiness. But if you have happiness, you'll probably never have joy. And the reason why is because happiness is dependent upon happenings. But joy is dependent on the eternal Son of God who sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven. So if you have joy, then you'll be able to have some happiness. And so the challenge is here, I think, are you trying to create an image versus living out of your identity in Christ? We fight together with interpersonal harmony, internal joy. Thirdly, relational excellence. Verse 5. This is similar, but goes beyond uh, Yodi and Syntyche. Relational excellence. Verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is a challenging word, uh, gentle. It's translated gentle. In previous translations of the Bible, it's translated forbearance. It might be different in yours. It's notoriously difficult to translate. And so it has a full range of meanings that is relational excellence. It's forbearance, it's yieldedness, it's geniality, it's kindliness, it's gentleness, it's sweet reasonableness, it's considerateness, it's charitableness, it's mildness, it's magnanimity. I can't even pronounce that. It's generosity. How many of you say, that's not me? Don't raise your hand. It's not me. I struggle with this. It's the idea of I would rather suffer wrong than be wrong. <sighs> Relational excellence, a very high EQ. Some of you have that. Pray for me. But the more of us that have it, the healthier our church is, and the better we fight together. A.W. Tozer said, our self-sins are damnably treacherous. Our self-sins are damnably treacherous. And some of you said, I just cussed in church. When you quote somebody cussing, you're not actually cussing yourself. I want you to know. But my self-sins are damnably treacherous. And I have blind spots to them. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-admiration, self-love, self-promotion. And what can happen is that we can keep doing the Christian life and we can stop growing spiritually, ending up in sort of emotional, spiritual mediocrity. 
And I like what John Mason said in his book, An Enemy Called Average. He said, mediocrity is a region bounded on the north by compromise, on the south by indecision, on the east by past thinking, and on the west by a lack of vision. And sometimes we've been following Jesus so long that we are mediocre in our growth. And you say, well, I don't need to keep growing. Jesus likes me like I am. I know he does. But grace is a fire, isn't it? That keeps fueling us toward Christ-likeness, relational excellence. And the more it exists, the better the church fights. Paul says, the Lord is near. And I think that has two ideas wrapped up in it. One idea is the Lord is near He's coming again. There's no, you know, we don't have time to mess around with building our images. Let's advance the kingdom. And the other thing is the Lord is near. Trust in his power to keep growing toward this kind of relational excellence. So the challenge is sort of to look inward and say, have I stopped growing? My warrior has to continue to learn to be more gracious like this. Lastly, interpersonal harmony, internal joy, relational excellence, and, and, de- and defeated anxiety. I love how he ends this. Verses 6 through 7. Uh, the church that fights on defeats anxiety. Be anxious for what? Nothing. This is crazy. How many of you have this? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have this memorized? Be anxious for nothing, but... In everything. Listen, uptight Christians advance uptight Christianity. Self-righteous Christians advance self-righteousness. And so, and so the reality is, he says, in, 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 be anxious for nothing. There is an antidote for anxiety. There is an antidote. It is, and it's called prayer. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And it's not just, hey, God, I'm anxious right now. Would you take care of it? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request. Do you notice all of the different words for prayer Paul uses there? Those are different words in the original language. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known for God. This is deep-seated, agonizing prayer to deal with anxiety. I've never been able to deal with my anxieties by just saying, hey, God, would you deal with this anxiety? I got to enter in and lay it out there. I got to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. And then I got to pour it out. I'm so anxious. I'm so uptight. Uh, and so, and so we get to pour it out. Don't just do something. Sit there. Joe Creech said last week, being does precede doing, but doing does follow being. And I want to tell you that dispelling anxiety is an ongoing thing. It's like, for, it's like forgiving somebody, right? When you say, have you forgiven them? And you say, yeah, I've worked at forgiving. No, I, I, I've forgiven. I, what I found for me is that when it comes to forgiveness, I forgive in steps. It gets better and better as I continue to forgive. But well, anxiety, let me tell you this, anxiety, you're going to get it and you can defeat it and you're going to get it again. 
and you can defeat it again. And you're going to get it again. And you can defeat it again. That's what warriors do. They fight the battle over and over and over. They gain victory over and over and over. And when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? Your anxiety is going to be gone. 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, we'll be like it. But until then, so, so uh, what was the challenge? Memorize these seven verses. You get three free sins. You had it. You had it. Memorize these seven verses because these seven verses are going to help us as we do life. Memorize them and work them out with other Christians in community because we can't do this alone. I cannot fight alone. I'm a warrior, but I cannot fight alone. You're warriors, but you cannot fight alone. Memorize these seven verses. Realize the war, uh, the world we live in is about. This makes strong women and strong men. It makes women who can admit they're weak and men who admit they're weak. Grace builds strong people who stand firm and fight together in this way. We stand firm and fight on until the king comes back and cleans up the mess. Warriors have to lick their wounds. Warriors have to rest. We get exhausted. We say we can't go on anymore. And some of you have fought and are fighting enormous battles. Ultimately, we win. Because Jesus has won. You take it to heart and let's pray. Lord God, give clarity to our minds to understand and recalibrate our view of the world that we're in a battle, not in a classroom. May you build by your grace strong and mighty women and strong and mighty men. May you build our church. May we remember that the gates of hell will not prevail against us because you, Lord Jesus, are Lord and King. Rest our hearts and prepare us for battle. For we pray in your holy and strong name. Amen.